From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks so much for tuning in on this Monday. I hope you uh, had an opportunity actually to tune in over the weekend and join us at the Pray Vote Stand Summit. It was a fantastic event. The information was so timely and it was infused with encouragement and spiritual insight. But if you were not able to be there or watch it, don't worry. You can still see it on demand. Go to TonyPerkins.com to find out how. FRC's Meg Kilgannon, Senior Fellow for Education Studies, was a part of several panel discussions at the summit this weekend, and she'll be joining me a little bit later in the program as we look at some of the highlights from this weekend's summit. But first... The radical people on this are really the people, the Democrats, that say after five months, six months, seven months, eight months, nine months, and even after birth... You're allowed to terminate the baby. Democrats aren't saying that. I just have to Democrats are not saying that. That was former President Donald Trump in in an interview that aired on Meet the Press yesterday. The president got a lot right, but part of what he had to say is drawing criticism from pro-life leaders. Marjorie Dannenfelser with Susan B. Anthony joins me later. And get ready for the calls this week to sacrifice all concern for fiscal responsibility on the altar of political urgency. I hope and pray that uh, Speaker McCarthy will say, hey, I'm going to throw over the far right and I'm going to put together a bipartisan effort with the Democrats and mainstream Republicans to keep the government funding. In other words, I'm going to compromise everything. That was Democrat Virginia Senator Mark Warner yesterday on Face the Nation. We're going to talk with Virginia Congressman Bob Good in just a moment about the latest on the negotiations over government funding. The five Americans who were being held by Iran are on their way home and will be landing in Washington, D.C. later this evening. In the meantime, the Biden administration remains on the defense over the $6 billion payment to the Iranian regime to secure the Americans' release. We're very confident that the, uh, the funds, the Iranian funds, that have been uh, made more easily available to Iran as a result uh, of uh, the actions that we've taken uh, will be used exclusively for humanitarian purposes, and we have the means and mechanisms to make sure that that happens. Well, it's good that the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is confident because most people are not. We're going to talk with retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis, a senior fellow for national security here at the Family Research Council, later on this edition of Washington Watch. The website is TonyPerkins.com. Lots of resources there for you. Our word for today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You know, comfort is a defining characteristic of God. The Greek word for comfort is parakaleo, which means coming alongside. The masculine noun is comforter, which is how Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit. Notice that Paul says God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations. In other words, God will come alongside us in every difficult situation. But there's more. Look at the reason. That we might be able to comfort or come alongside others with the same comfort we receive from God. We are comforted by God so that we might comfort others. To join us in this journey through the Bible, go to frc.org Bible. 
or join me each morning at TonyPerkins.com. With just eight legislative days scheduled before a possible government shutdown, House Republicans are moving toward a continuing resolution to extend current funding another month, while also enhancing spending for border security. With a House vote on this continuing resolution, or CR, as it's known on the Hill, possibly coming as early as Thursday, many conservative members of the House consider this spending plan as a mere continuation of the Biden administration's budget and policies and are saying they cannot support such a measure. Joining me now to discuss this and more is Congressman Bob Good. He serves on the House Budget Committee and the House Committee on Education and Workforce. He represents the 5th Congressional District of Virginia. He's also a member of the House Freedom Caucus. Congressman Good, welcome back to the program. Great to see you. Hey, Tony. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me once again, my friend. So let's talk about this. Uh, this is a unique opportunity, and, and I've seen this so many times over the 20 years. And I was talking with a, a couple of uh, your colleagues this morning about this, that there, there's this fear of the pain that's going to be required to bring our spending into uh, alignment with the, po- the principles of responsible government. Where do we stand in these negotiations, and are we likely to see changes. I would like to frame the issue, Tony, by reminding our viewers that we are on track for a $2.2 trillion deficit this year, uh, the largest non-COVID deficit in the history of the country. Uh, We're going to, you know, borrow some $6,000 per, a little more than $6,000 per American citizen, not household, not taxpayer, but citizen. We're going to spend about twenty thousand dollars per citizen. Again, borrow six thousand of that, and only three thousand of that twenty will be to defend the country from a national security standpoint. Uh, in addition, we are knocking on the door of thirty-three trillion dollars national debt, right at hundred thousand dollars per three hundred thirty million Americans. And all of this is happening, Tony, with a Republican majority. We ran last November on fiscal responsibility. We ran on cutting spending. The speaker committed to that effect back in January in order to become speaker. We committed to going back to pre-COVID levels for non-defense discretionary spending. Virtually all Republicans voted to that effect in April. And quite simply, the speaker has failed to lead us. He's failed to cast a vision. He's failed to strongly persuade Republicans to follow him in doing what we committed to do. And we find ourselves here on September 18 with only having passed one of our 12 appropriations bills. Quite simply, we should pass those bills, send them to the Senate, and then Schumer can decide if he wants a Schumer shutdown again. And it's up to him whether or not he does that. We can do that close to September 30 or early into October with minimal impact on the American people, virtually no impact. Quite frankly, we did it a week or two into October. That's where we should be, and that's what we should do. So, Congressman, as you mentioned, one of the 12 appropriations bills in the House has has moved forward, none in the Senate. Is there time to get that done in the, the next week? It'll be challenging with uh, essentially two weeks left this week and next week, you know, 10 legislative days certainly to do that. But again, it's not some dramatic thing that happens on October 1 at the start of the new fiscal year. 85% of government operations continue. Only about 15% are placed on pause. As you know, all federal workers are either paid or made whole. Essential operations continue. Most Americans won't even notice there's a shutdown unless they're watching the news reports and listening to the media and hearing the predictions of catastrophe. However, again, we could get this done a week or two into October. It takes leadership from the speaker. 
And it takes uh, heretofore undemonstrated resolve on his part to cut our spending, to lead our conference, to keep the commitments from January, to do what we said we would do in April. And frankly, Tony, what he said he would do after he caught so much criticism for the Failed Responsibility Act, the certainly the, the, the basically unconditional debt ceiling increase in May, when he said, well, that's the that's the ceiling, not not the floor. We're going to really use the appropriations process to cut our spending. Right. And so far, he has failed to lead us to do that. Yeah, I recall that very clearly, that the appropriations process was where the cuts were going to take place, but we've not seen the appropriations moving no. f forward. Now, the, the government shutdown, I mean, that's more of the, the, the kind of COVID scare tactics, uh, that, you know, the, the, the sky is falling, it's going to be disastrous. We've been through those before, and, and the world still rotates. Yes, we're only here because of a failure on the speaker's part to lead. Frankly, he could command those moderate members who said only he could be our speaker. He's the only one they could support. They followed him and him alone. And he could be telling them, this is what I need uh, to stay on as speaker, quite frankly, uh, to keep our commitments to the American people. And Tony, we're only, the, the going to pre-COVID non-defense discretionary levels is only a $115 billion cut when we're running a monthly deficit of more than $150 billion. So quite frankly, what we're calling for is the compromise that we voted for in April, when many of us would like to cut our spending much more. And frankly, the debt and the national debt demand that we cut it much more. And Tony, I've only had one constituent, one constituent tell me they're concerned about a government shutdown, where I've had hundreds over the last few weeks beg me uh, not, not to be afraid of a shutdown, to insist that we cut our spending, not to, to agree to a continuing resolution, but to demand that we pass our bills, implement our conservative priorities, and cut our spending. All right, Congressman Good. let's talk about uh, an agreement in principle that was reached by the House uh, Freedom Caucus, members of the House Freedom Caucus and the uh, Main Street Caucus, which would essentially create a CR for about 30 days. It uh, would cut discretionary spending by 8 percent, continuing funding for education, would attach H.R. 2, the border a bill that the Republicans passed to the funding bill. It would also uh, attach the appropriations bill that did pass regarding the Department of Defense. Is this a non-starter? Uh, well, I think so. And I appreciate my colleagues who've worked this effect. But to clarify, it wasn't an agreement by the Freedom Caucus. What you had was three representatives, or I should say three members of the Freedom Caucus on their own, not representing the Freedom Caucus, three members on their own, great members who I respect greatly, close friends of mine. But those three members chose to meet with three members of the uh, Main Street Caucus to see if they could kind of get on the same page, the six of them, and then bring back to the conference at large some kind of a proposal. They've done that. But, but, Tony, what it does is it cuts only the non-national security or non-defense portion of the uh, discretionary spending. So about 40 percent of that is what it cuts, and it cuts by 8 percent for one 30-day period. I don't even know how you implement that for 30 days or how it has a chance to take effect even for 30 days. But you're really talking about 3 percent of discretionary funding because funding, it only applies to 40 percent of discretionary funding, and it's 8 percent cut of that. So if you annualize that, that's about a— uh, what uh, three percent annualizes is, is is about two and a half percent on our 0.25 percent funding cut for thirty days uh, to the discretionary funding, 
And you know they're even acknowledging they don't think the Senate would pass it, and certainly would not with the uh, border security portion of it. And what I think efforts are being made, uh, and I have, I have to assume the best of intentions, of course, for my, my colleagues who I respect, but to relieve the pressure. But I, I don't think we ought to relieve the pressure on Speaker McCarthy. I think he ought to do what he committed to do. It's within his power to lead us. And frankly, that's what he needs to do. And we need to pass our spending bills. So do you expect a vote on the House floor this week on this proposed CR? I suspect we will not have a vote on it because I don't think there's sufficient number of votes for it to pass. So I don't think that it'll be brought to the floor. So is there any movement then to start moving these appropriation bills to the floor, seeing that we do not have a short term funding uh, measure that looks like it'll be successful? Well, you're going to have mounting pressure to do so, and the House can take the high ground. Again, I know I keep repeating it, Tony, but it is that simple. Pass, it's like running right. a marathon. It's not complicated. Run that direction for 26 miles and don't stop. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. We need to pass our spending bills. The Speaker can lead us. You know, we, we know with a narrow majority, there's many of us who can stop things from happening or slow things down. But if you want to get something done to command the majority to do it, to lead the majority to do it, to carry the voice of the conference, it takes the Speaker's office. And the Speaker's office needs to cast the vision get behind the vision, lead uh, the, the membership in doing that. Uh, the conservative votes are there. The American people are there to cut our spending back to pre-COVID levels, as we committed to do for non-defense discretionary spending. The speaker needs to lead the moderates and the independents, or excuse me, the moderates uh, among our, our, our caucus, our Republican conference. And then, frankly, it goes to the Senate for negotiation. Right. And then what comes back, you know, maybe it's not something that I can vote for with a compromise with a Democrat Senate. But the moderates would have a chance to vote for it when it came back from the Senate. All right. Uh, Bob Good, always great to see you. Thanks so much for joining me, my friend. Thank you, Tony. Great to be with you. All right, folks, it's going to be an interesting week. We're going to keep tracking. Don't go away. We're back after this. Today, more than ever, men need a reminder of what biblical manhood looks like and to understand God's good design for them, to serve as provider, instructor, battle buddy, defender, and chaplain. They need a battle plan to truly live out their role. Family Research Council's Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin and Dr. Keenan Kirtan's book, Strong and Courageous, a sequel to Man to Man, offers this battle plan so that men can pursue their God-given responsibility in a culture quickly turning away from God's design. The authors unpack the Old Testament book of Joshua as the focus of their study, asking readers to look to his leadership to help consider and apply the key principles of biblical manhood. It's time for men to accept their role in the family and community and truly embrace their God-given purpose. To order your copy of Strong and Courageous, A Call to Biblical Manhood, go to frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Again, that's frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clausen, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific 
specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Welcome back to Washington Watch. If you missed the Pray Vote Stand Summit this weekend, you can still watch it on demand. Go to TonyPerkins.com to find out how it was a fantastic event. Well, earlier this month, Vice President Kamala Harris refused to place any restrictions on her call for abortion on demand until birth, demonstrating once again the radical and extreme position of the Democratic Party. Now, President Trump yesterday called out the Democrats for their extreme position. The radical people on this are really the people, the Democrats, that say after five months, six months, seven months, eight months, nine months, and even after birth, you're allowed to terminate the baby. Democrats aren't saying that. I just have to Democrats are not saying that. Well, joining me now to discuss this and much more. Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. Marjorie, welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to see you. So isn't that exactly what former Virginia Governor Ralph Northam said, abortion up until birth and beyond? I want to play this clip because, you know, the press likes to kind of sweep stuff from the past under the rug. Play clip 11. If a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly uh, what would happen. Um, the infant would be delivered. Uh, the infant would be kept comfortable. Uh, the infant would be resuscitated if, if that's what the uh, mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. Now that's a baby that survives an abortion. Isn't that abortion after birth? In- indeed it is. And in fact, the Senate bill that Democrats and Kamala Harris and Biden support makes it very clear that the child itself has no rights. The bill that is written is far worse than Roe versus Wade ever was. And it provides only, provides in quotes, for a woman to have an abortion at any point and that she and the doctor be the only decision maker up until birth, uh, with exceptions being huge loopholes that only the abortionist can uh, ascertain or um, decide for himself what, what would be appropriate. There is absolutely um, abortion uh, up until birth because we know abortion survivors. There's an entire network of abortion survivors that speak out 
and can speak very personally to uh, to the to, to the pain and all sorts of pain that one would would you can imagine woman undergo after being the victim of a failed abortion. Yeah, you know, former President uh, Donald Trump spoke at the Pray Vote Stand uh, Summit uh, on Friday, which we were so thankful to have uh, Susan B. Anthony as one of the sponsors of. And, and he stood there uh, as the most pro-life president in our nation's history, and he uh, was very clear about that. But in an interview that aired yesterday on Meet the Press, I want to play a clip of what he had to say because, quite frankly, it was a bit troubling. Play clip number seven. Now, would you sign that? I, 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 would, I would sit down with both sides and I'd negotiate something, and we'll end up with peace on that issue for the first time in 52 years uh, I'm not going to say I would or I wouldn't. I mean, DeSantis w- is willing to sign a five-week and six-week ban. Would you support that? You think I, that I goes think what he far? did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake. Your response, Marjorie? My response is that each child that lives because the line was drawn at heartbeat in Florida is a gift to this world that can never be replaced. It, of course, is not a terrible thing. It's an awesomely wonderful thing that this governor signed that bill and and actually agreed to the will of Floridians, which is how this is supposed to work now. The will of the people is allowed to make its way. So, of course, I disagree with the president. Of course, the president, uh, the former president, um, is the person who made this even possible. This is this legacy that he, uh, I think, uh, very well should be... um, embracing and communicating and clarifying uh, is that um, we can now act upon the will of the people and enact consensus opinion um, on the abortion issue in the law that saves lives and serves women just like in Florida. I think what we need from this president and from Governor uh, DeSantis is a clear and specific vision about how they would um, rule, how they would Um, run as president, but also how they would govern as president. And neither of them are running for either the governor of Florida or the past president. They're running to be the future president. Americans need to hear what that looks like along the lines of what uh, um, Mike Pence and Tim Scott have communicated so beautifully. I, I agree with you. It was disturbing to hear the president say that. You and I have had conversations with with, with him regarding this. I, I, I still think there's there's confusion in the minds of some, but it's very simple. Uh, the, the the court decision gave elected officials the ability to find a consensus point and move policy forward. You and I, I think are in the same place. We believe all life should be mm-hmm. protected from the moment of conception yes. on. But that's not where everybody's at in America. But there is consensus nationally that's building around where a child feels pain and sucks its thumb around the point of 15 weeks. That's really the issue, is not restricting what the states can do more significant than that, like heartbeat, but that there's a minimum threshold for the entire country so that we're not like in in league with North Korea. Yeah, and you know it shouldn't be uh, determinative where you live, whether you get to live. If you live in California, you're born in California, you're conceived in California, um, you won't have the same rights as if you were conceived in Oklahoma or in Florida. Uh, and that shouldn't be in a nation as great, of, great as ours. And as you say, we're in league with the human rights violators of the world um, and the people that are actually putting forward that position of the nation's human rights violators of the world, like North Korea and China and their abortion law, are the Democratic Party. They are not in line with most of the country. 
They simply aren't because they, uh, they are not there for abortion rights, so-called, up until birth. And when you contrast that with, with 12 weeks, 6 weeks, 15 weeks, um, you win every single time because you're standing with a much larger crowd of people. <laughs> you're standing with the majority of people, 70% when you talk about a 15-week limit. And that not only is uh, closer to, a, to the right thing to do, but it's also the politically smart thing to do when you contrast that with an unlimited abortion position. You're, you're absolutely correct, Marjorie. And, you know, I love President Trump, uh, former President Trump, and what he did for this country and for the unborn. But he yes. has a legacy he has to build on going forward. Uh, you can't rest on that legacy. Uh, Marjorie mm-hmm. Danafelzer, always great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Same to you. Thank you, Tony. All right. Uh, to find out more, go to the website, TonyPerkins.com. Look, we, we cannot rest for a moment. We have to continue to build, educate, and move forward the sanctity of life in this nation. And part of it comes at finding that point of consensus. And there is consensus. It's nearly 70% of Americans agree that a baby should not be aborted when it feels pain. It's in the womb sucking its thumb. And we don't stop there, but that is a consensus point right now. All right, don't go away. We're back with more Washington Watch on the other side of this break. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Have you seen the Now We Live series? It is a six-week worldview Bible study created in partnership with Family Research Council and Summit Ministries. This video series was put together to help Christians propel faith into action. It offers six free videos to prompt rich discussions about some of life's most foundational questions among churches, small groups, and families. Each video is led by well-known Christian voices and addresses questions regarding worldview, Jesus, truth, identity, and society. It's so important for Christians to both know the truth and to live in a way that is compatible with the truth. Being grounded in what is true and living out God's grace allows a believer's faith to truly transform one's own life and ultimately help transform a broken world. Equip yourself and other Christians to learn more about what it means to truly hold a biblical worldview. Access this important series by going to frc.org worldview. Again, go to frc.org worldview. This is Washington Watch, and I'm your host, Tony Perkins. Good to have you with us on this Monday. The website is TonyPerkins.com. Well, five U.S. citizens held hostage by Iran were freed today and are expected to land in the Washington, D.C. region this evening. 
Their release came as part of what the White House described as a, quote, complex diplomatic deal, end quote. That not uh, coincidentally involved the Biden administration's agreement to release uh, $6 billion in oil assets to the Iranian regime that has been classified as the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism. I wonder what's on their uh, shopping list with that $6 billion. Joining me now to discuss this and more, retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis and senior fellow national security here at Family Research Council. Colonel, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for having me, Tony. So five U.S. citizens are returning home. We can certainly be thankful for that. Um, $6 billion that was exchanged to a terrorist organization. Now, the, the administration says it was not a, an, a, a payment of any kind. So what was it? Well, certainly releasing $6 billion is a payment. Uh, they did not expect to get it for free. Uh, and unfortunately, because money like that is fungible, even though the administration says that it's going to be used for food and medicine and the like, uh, those dollars are not marked, um, and we can't trace them. Um, we're relying upon the word of a terrorist that they're not going to use them to buy terrorist equipment, much less, you know, to you know, invest in their nuclear program, which they threaten Israel and United States installations across the region and even the underbelly of Europe. So, I think it's the height of uh, being naive on the part of the Biden administration, but. It's the same sort of thing we've seen in, in the past, uh, certainly with the Obama administration, of which Mr. Biden was the vice president, under JCPOA, uh, that was a disastrous deal. And today, we know from three European nations that just a couple days ago complained that Iran is sitting on a stockpile of 60% enriched uranium. And there's no logical civilian use for that. So what are they going to do? They're probably going to make a nuclear weapon, uh, not only to threaten you know, Israel, but also the rest of the world. So this is, I would argue, a disaster. Yes, I applaud the fact that those five Americans uh, have freedom, and I celebrate that. But it also puts a a mark on the back of every American in that region that all the you know the mullahs of Iran have to do is take uh, some of us into captivity, and in the future they'll get more billions of dollars. That's the wrong message. Right. Bad policy. I, I want to go to the mechanics of this. The Biden administration has repeatedly said that the U.S. Treasury will continue to monitor the accounts in Qatar and restrict the use of funds. Uh, that are not used for humanitarian purposes. I mean, how are they going to do that? What levers do they have that they can pull to, to number one, as you said, the money's fungible. You don't know where it's going. But even if you did, how can they stop the flow of this money once it's been released? Well, the, the Iranians, all they have to do is a sleight of hand, Tony, and that is they'll take the $6 billion, they'll use it for things that are already in the budget that fit those descriptions, and then they, you know, loosen up six billion other dollars so they can invest elsewhere. Uh, so it's just a movement of, um, you know, these pawns across the chessboard uh, that will facilitate arguably more terrorism, more threats against Israel, more threats against the U.S. interests abroad. You know, they, they say, again, and I'm, I'm just, it's, it's difficult to follow the administration because, quite frankly, I don't trust anything that they say. 
But they, they say that this is not going to – this money, this $6 billion, it, number one, they say it's not uh, U.S. tax dollars, which we, we understand. It is assets that were frozen uh, with South Korea. Uh, but they, they said that this is not going to Iranian companies or entities. Um, so where is it going? Well, Tony, they're experts, and we know of illicit activities across the world. We watch them you know, from the skies through satellites. We monitor their electronic transmissions. We know how they operate, and we sometimes stop that. Uh, but they're not going to be able uh, to use uh, the $6 billion in the way in which we want it used. Uh, like I say, they're just going to relinquish control over six billion other dollars in their budget right. and use it as they intend to use it. Well, now, th this is a this is a game they play, and they've they've been very good at playing this for many many years. But but they're not even hiding it. President uh, Iranian President Raisi has been defiant, saying we're going to spend it however we want to spend it. Yeah, absolutely. And tomorrow. He's going to be at the United Nations making a speech, Tony, and he basically is going to say that this is a sign the U.S. has you know, grown even weaker, weaker than perhaps a year ago when the Biden administration abandoned Afghanistan and all the you know, allies that were left behind to the butchery of the Taliban and the al-Qaeda. So we need to recognize who we're dealing with, but unfortunately, now, this administration is incredibly dangerous, much less naive when it comes to ruling or working with the mullahs. Uh, and we've already lost the, you know, the good friendship with the Saudis, though they're, they're not very sympathetic to a lot of our beliefs. At right. least they were on our side and no longer are they on our side. And of course, uh, they willy-nilly kill Americans every chance they get. I, you know, last time I was in Iraq, I saw irrefutable evidence of the Iranian militias and right. their complicity in killing many, many Americans. So blood yeah. is on their hands. We've given them more than we ever should have. And yet this is just further indication that this administration well, can't be trusted with right. the foreign policy of this nation. Colonel McGinnis, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Great to see you. Stick around, folks. We're coming back with more after this. Are you prepared to pray, vote, and stand for biblical truth? It is imperative that Christians pray for their community and culture to steward their role as a citizen by voting and to stand for biblical truth. This means that Christians must be intentional about seeking after the Lord in all things. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission as he hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to inspire brothers and sisters in Christ to turn their attention to the Lord first and in every compartment of their lives. Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly half-hour program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. Watch the Pray, Vote, Stand weekly broadcasts and commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. Just go to PrayVoteStand.org. Again, that's PrayVoteStand.org.
Tech censorship is on the rise. Big tech companies are attempting to cancel conservatives and Christians, which is why here at Family Research Council, we've decided to be proactive so that big tech cannot silence us completely. FRC has a text subscription platform to be sure we can continue to keep you in the loop. That way, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. You can get FRC's content straight to your phone. Just sign up for our text alerts by texting STAND to 67742. Again, you simply text STAND to 67742, and FRC will send you special alerts on the issues that matter to you. By subscribing, you'll also be one of the first to know about our upcoming events and programs. All of this info is yours with just a simple text. You'll have access to content that will help you continue to stand for faith, family, and freedom. And you'll know about opportunities to connect with like-minded communities. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Finding a quality news source today in this media-saturated world can be incredibly difficult. It is important to stay informed on what is going on in the world, but you need a news source you can trust. That is why Family Research Council created The Washington Stand, an online news platform with a mission to provide readers with free, factual news stories, and commentaries all from a biblical worldview. Based in Washington, D.C., our reporters provide reliable information on the most crucial issues of the day, ranging from breaking news on the hottest Supreme Court decisions to details on the latest public education stories, updates to domestic and international religious liberty cases, and more. We want you and your family to stay informed on what is happening in the world that affects faith, family, and freedom. Be encouraged. Be in the know. And stand firm in truth by visiting WashingtonStand.com today. That's WashingtonStand.com. FRC celebrating 40 years with its first president, Jerry Regeer. Family Research Council is extremely important. And I think there's a lot of people both both in the Christian world as well as on Capitol Hill that really depend on the research and the input that FRC gives them. And uh, the impact you've had on both Congress and Senate as well as uh, America at large is really quite amazing. Congratulations. Again, that was the first president of the Family Research Research Council, Jerry Regeer, who we actually uh, was a part of the, 50, the 40th gala this past Saturday night in Washington, D.C., and uh, certainly honored him for his leadership role. had an opportunity to sit down and talk with him as a part of the gala on Saturday night. And again, if you, uh, you didn't get a chance to see it, go to TonyPerkins.com and you can uh, watch it uh, on demand. It was really a great, great night. And I'm so grateful for the men and women who for 40 years have been a part of the Family Research Council, championing the kingdom of God by advancing faith, family, and freedom in our country's policies. I, I want to tie up a couple of things before I go to my next guest. Um, just we kind of run up to the uh, end of the segment with Bob there with Colonel McGinnis. Uh, the uh, Iranian president, as he mentioned, is going to be at the United Nations this week. And I have no doubt that he's going to replete repeat his claim at the United Nations that he'll spend this money however he wants. I, I doubt President Biden, when he's there, is going to voluntarily bring this issue up, but I have no doubt that his administration will repeat their talking points, saying that they'll 
clamp down on this, they'll restrict it, they'll do all this, they'll hold them accountable. You want to you wanna know who I will believe? It's going to be the one speaking, Farsi. Uh, I, 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 I just do not trust this administration. I, I, first off, I don't see how they're going to be able to do it. It's just like Planned Parenthood. We've made this analogy before, but Planned Parenthood gets Title X funding. That's, that's family planning. And this was a big issue because we, we were able to get uh, the Trump administration to put in place what's called the, the co-location rule, which means you can't do abortions and family planning in the same facility because your overhead's covered. You, the money's fungible. You can use it. You can move money around. Yeah, maybe it doesn't pay directly for abortion, but it pays for everything else. Same thing here. Oh, it, yeah, it's going to be used for humanitarian purposes. Yeah, so they can then take the money that they were already going to have to earmark uh, for essential items and use it to, to, to fund other terrorist activity. As Colonel McGinnis said, this administration is dangerous. And I want to go back prior to that with uh, my conversation with Marjorie Dannenfelser, with Susan B. Anthony for Pro-Life America, a great partner um, on the life issue. And I'm going to be very clear about this, um, and I've communicated. I I think the president is wrong on this. I do not think he should. uh, I think he's confused. He should not be uh, going after states that are moving forward with consensus policy to protect the unborn. Now, I know that there are some in the pro-life movement that that feel like, you know, we've just got to throw deep. Look, I think we got to a point where Roe was overturned because we took an incremental approach and we brought the American people along. I was criticized years ago when I authored one of the first uh, abortion clinic regulation acts in the nation. But we brought people along. We humanized the unborn. And we reached a point last year where the court finally readdressed this issue. Now, there's a lot of work to be done, but I think what worked in the past should be the pattern for what we do in the future, continuing to build consensus. And there is consensus building over a national threshold of when a child feels pain when it's sucking its thumb. It's not where I want to stop. I'll be very clear. I'm not hiding it. I want to go all the way to the point where at the moment of conception, but we're not there yet. Some states are, and they can continue to do that. Oklahoma can do that. Louisiana, my home state, they can go further. Florida can go further. Ohio can go further under a pain bill. That's just a national minimum standard. I do think that's the way forward. I think President Trump needs to come around to that point. I think all the Republican candidates need to come around to that point as a minimum. Anyway, that's where I stand. All right, back to the Prevote Stand Summit that we had this weekend in Washington. In addition to featuring presidential candidates and Washington leaders, the Prevote Stand Summit offered panel discussions highlighting subjects of concern for Christian voters, including powerful dialogues on the topics of education and the whole LGBTQ agenda, particularly transgender indoctrination. And what we see here is a clear attack to push radical gender ideology in the classroom, destroy American history, 
and take all rights away from parents. That, that's what's going on. But we have to continue the fight. We have to win this war for our kids, for our kids' souls, for our kids' minds. That was Ryan Walters, Oklahoma State Superintendent of Public Education. Let me just tell you one thing. That's one of the reasons I'm encouraged. Now, not only am I a graduate of uh, the public schools in Oklahoma, uh, that's where I grew up, but what's happening, what we've seen, and you've heard other you've heard other superintendents of education on this program in the last year, year and a half. That didn't happen before. Why is that happening? Because conservatives are running and getting elected to these positions. They're running and getting elected to school boards. Good things are happening because people are praying, they're voting, and they're standing for truth. Joining me to review the many highlights from this weekend is FRC Senior Fellow for Education Studies, Meg Kilgan. And Meg, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks so much, Tony. It was such a such an amazing weekend. It was really, really a great weekend and a wonderful celebration of 40 years. Let's talk about the, uh, you know, this was, a, I've heard this over and over. I was talking to actually Pastor Jack called, Jack Hibbs called me uh, this morning. Uh, before he caught his flight out of D.C., just saying that, you know, this was a wonderful intersection of faith and policy, unlike anything we've seen before where, you know, the the, the whole spiritual biblical perspective was infused in every conversation. That was really, that is the difference that we bring to Washington, Tony, is that our our policies and our positions are founded on moral truth. They're founded on biblical principles. They're rooted in the natural law. And so when we're voicing these these positions on issues, whether it's in Washington, D.C., or it's happening on a school board, for example, when a Christian is on a school board, you're starting a conversation at a point where you're starting from the truth, the, the correct position. And so whatever sort of negotiating you have to do after that point is much more fruitful for everyone because you haven't given away the store at the outset by trying to be nice or couch your terms or, you know, make things seem more pleasant to people. And it's not that the truth is unpleasant. It's just uncomfortable for people who lie. Right. right. And so when you have people on school boards and serving in public office who are willing to stand for what is true and stand on biblical principles, we're all going to be better off in the end. Yeah, and we had some reporters kind of roving around through the summit the weekend, and, and they were kind of taken aback by the, the spiritual biblical emphasis. Uh, yes, I think they were. And um, and I, I hope that, you know, God, God is, a, is a great God, and maybe some hearts were moved. We never know what, what little seed might have been planted by simply um, having all the all the press there and able, you know, they there were parts that they probably had to listen to that they maybe hadn't heard in a while. I don't know, um, but the 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 spiritual aspect of the event really is what is so unique about Family Research Council and so desperately needed in all of the policy areas that we cover, whether it's in federal policy at the state level, at the school board level, it is the the spiritual grounding that Christians bring into every space we enter that is such a desperately needed 
focus for our culture right now. And so it was it was great to visit with people who have, you know, when we had the event in 2020 in Loudoun County, we were pretty much laying out, okay, this is the problem and we need to have people come and run and that, and we still have these problems and we still need people to come and run, but it was really special to get to visit with people who did answer that call. They did run, they are making a difference and, you know, children and families will be the beneficiaries of that. And the other thing it was not just parents and activists, as great as that was, uh, it was encouraging to see because there is a level of engagement and also uh, uh, several people asked me about this and I was trying to, to describe it, but a sense of not panicked urgency, but a sense of timing that the, that mm. this is the time in which we uh, the, the nation really hangs in the balance. And again, not 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 ang not anxious, not uh, right. but but really kind of a confidence as we focus in on the source of our strength, as was repeated often, and it was very encouraging to me to see the number of people that went to Ephesians chapter 6, uh, talking about various aspects of the discussion, but one being that, that the source of our strength is in the Lord, and that mm -hmm. gives us confidence even in the face of great conflict and challenges. But we also saw, Meg, a number of elected leaders who are right there at the tip of the spear and unapologetically leading forward from that same position of strength in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And, you know, the, 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 the example that you played at the top of the, of the segment with, with Ryan Walters, he's just a fearless leader in a very red state like Oklahoma that protects abortion from protects life from abortion from conception to natural death right so that is a great state and obviously their values are are in in line with biblical values and and that's reflected more in their government then you had Sonia Shaw from California who is dealing with an incredibly challenging situation there and she is just leading with the quiet determination and the profound faith that she has that she brings into the school board room and she was the first that school board was the first one in California to pass parental protections that said that if a student identifies as transgender or has a gender identity issue or wants to be called another name that the school must, must notify the parents. And so you've seen, there are now I think seven or eight school boards who've passed similar policies. And some of them are not as strong as the one that Sonia and her board passed. I wanna, but the I point is there's momentum. With Sonia, I, I just wanna state that because she came up to me uh, and, and talked to me a couple of times. And this is for our viewers and listeners, because many of you signed a prayer pledge for her, which we delivered when we were out in California for our dinner out there. But she came up to me and she said, I cannot tell you how impactful that was. I mean, in fact, her brother came up and talked to me about it. She said, it's on my nightstand. And she says she looks through it and she finds encouragement. So, folks, you know, you know, I think, well, what, what difference can I make? I just want you to know, simply by responding, when we ask you to respond, we don't do that for no reason, but we do it with intentionality. That has encouraged her to continue in her stand, knowing that there are thousands of Americans out there across this country that are praying for her. So we all have a role to play. And of course, Meg, that was one of the things that came forth this weekend is that 
we, we all can take our place on the wall to, to rebuild the walls of this nation. Before we run out of time, I want to ask you this question. What, what was a highlight for you, one or two highlights from this weekend for you? I got to meet in the green room a couple of women. The, the gender panel that you did on Saturday with, with Amy and, and uh, Brandon and, and um, Jennifer Bowens, I got to meet another mom who I had only known by a false name because her child was still identifying as transgender and she was so focused on helping her child and wanted, but, but still wanted to work in secret to force some governmental change to get relief for her, for her family. Um, and, and meeting those two women who I had only known by code names and seeing that now they're able to speak out uh, boldly and uh, under their own names. I mean, it was, that was really a highlight for me and, and the, just the engagement with the with the people. We have the best people, you know. Yeah, all all of the folks that come, you know, they're just wonderful, and so so talented. Very impressive careers. Very impressive prayer lives and and faith witnesses. It's just wonderful to engage with them. It was um, like and uh, to know that they're praying for us as we do our work here, and we're praying for them. I, I mean, it's just a really wonderful community. It was and like to an think old... that this has been the case for forty years. I mean, it's no wonder Roe v. Wade is overturned now, yeah, right? And we yeah. are, we are making a difference. The times do seem dark right now, but but we have made huge, huge, you know, great, good steps forward. It, it was like a one of those old time weekend camp meetings right there in the middle of Washington, D.C. It was it was powerful. And that uh, conversation we had with Amy on that panel, this is the first time she's actually publicly cam come out yes. on, in her real name and spoken about what she went through. Very powerful. And folks, I would encourage you to go to TonyPerkins.com and you can actually watch those panel discussions. It was powerful. Meg Kilgannon, always great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And folks, thank you for joining us. It's always great to see you as well. Until next time, I leave you once again with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you have taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. Three, seven, two, seven, two, three, four.